Hello and welcome to the Vagabond Actors Podcast. We're here to discuss all things acting and we tend to focus on craft, process and the business and pretty much everything in between. My name is Gary Condes and I'm talking to you from London. And as always, I am joined by my fellow acting teachers, coaches, and working actors. They are a dynamic duo. They are Brian Casp from Prague, Czech Republic. How are you doing, Brian? Hey, Gary. How's it going? Yeah, pretty good, thanks. And we're also being joined by, as always, Andrea Helen, who is based in Mallorca, Spain. Hello, Andrea. Hi, guys. Happy to be here. Good. Happy to have you, as always. <laughs> Now, so what have you guys been up to this week, creatively or in relation to your work or teaching or coaching or acting? You know, which hat did you wear this week? I've been wearing the business person's hat of trying to organize some classes, help with casting a play here, and doing more reading as well, sort of a look back into habits, personal habits, fire rhythms, mindset, but also, as this one author describes, other aspects of your well-being, heart set, and health set, and soul set, concepts like that. So taking a look at, you know, how one goes through the day, how you can sort of optimize yourself for um, having a more joyful and, and peaceful experience. And being a little bit more conscientious. It's something we we do, I think, when we are acting because we know where to put our attention. Mm-hmm. But I find that when we're not acting, it's really easy to be bouncing around from subject to subject and email to phone to conversation. And then the great ideas get a little bit lost. And what courses have you got coming up and what things have you been putting together? What have you got in store, basically? Well, I've been supporting uh, the Institute for Acting here in Mallorca with an upcoming workshop inviting four top casting directors to come in October for really major women who I think we're going to are going to offer a lot of important information to the actors. And as well, I am reconceiving a little bit the class that I've been teaching. I think we're going to bring some teenagers into the work because I know a number of teenagers here who really, really love drama and performance and they need somebody to study with. So why can't it be me? I think you'd be great with the kids, the teenagers. I think so too. Yeah. Oh, thank you. As opposed to Brian and myself, who will just get <laughs> making emotional wrecks before their time. I once walked into a class. I was renting out my studio to an actual youth theater. And for some reason, the the times got mixed up. And I walked into the class and I was so, I get so full of opinion and passion and and a point of view when I'm in the classroom Mm -hmm. and I walked in and I was like, why are you guys in here? You know, I was, I was so forceful in my kind of kicking them out of the space because we were about to have class that I think one of the kids went and threw up (laughs) because she felt like they were in such terrible trouble. And then I was like, Oh my God, well, who am I? I'm a monster. I don't know what's going on. (laughs) <laughs> a really nice guy. 
I'm a monster. Oh, man. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't teach kids. <laughs> <laughs> it takes a lot of energy and enthusiasm. And, yes, I do think you have to be thoughtful about how you give them feedback and what you yeah, send them yeah. away with. I've known some really, really tough teachers who work with kids and I couldn't believe how much the kids respected them and, and produced great work. And yet with other personalities, I think if they were to take on those tactics, it would just absolutely backfire. And then I know other um, specialists in, in, in children's work who, who really are just me, to me brilliant because they, I don't know, they bring a quirkiness and a sense of humor and joy to it no matter what. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I think the kids really respond to that. So it's very, your personality uh, will definitely play a role. Because if they don't like it, you'll know. Well, but this wasn't my class. I mean, I think if it was my class, I could, I would know how to temper it. But I, for some reason, I walked into the class and I was there was a mix up, and they were there, and I was supposed to be there. It was, it was bad. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, what have you been up to, Brian, this week? Well, I had a, quite an interesting conversation with a fellow actor here. He helped me out with a self-tape that I did, and then I helped him out with self-tape that he had to do. And we had a really interesting conversation because he's been watching lots and lots of self-tapes. And it was really, really interesting, his insights into what actors are doing in the self-tapes that he's seen. And he said that after watching a bunch of self-tapes for the same role, you kind of get numb to people doing the quote-unquote right choices mm-hmm. because everyone is doing the right choices. Everyone is doing the scene as it should be done. And what we kind of came to was that instead of aiming for the right interpretation of the scene to hit all of the moments in the scene, it's almost better to aim to be interesting and to make interesting choices and to add something to it that is not maybe in the text. Uh, not to go completely against the text and not to, to not to dishonor what is what those moments might be, but if there's something extra that you bring to it, almost a kind of I kind of feel it like a kind of irreverence for. I'm going to have this experience and that's what it's going to be. That in the sea of self-tapes that he was watching, that kind of performance and that kind of individuality and that kind of chutzpah, if you want to you know, get technical about it, that really stands out. And I think that that's a really important insight that I had known but not heard about from someone who was watching just probably tens or hundreds of self-tapes for a particular role. And I thought that was really interesting. So that was, that's my artistic moment. So so if you boil that down, it's what versus what? I think it's doing a faithful interpretation of the script that is just a faithful interpretation of the script versus knowing the moments in the script and then doing something that is unique to you. Mm -hmm. I think that's what it's, that's what it comes down to. So rather than just trying to do a faithful rendition of the scene, it's still serving the scene, but bringing your own uniqueness 
to that or through that or... Yes. And not being afraid to have moments that maybe are off from what the scene should quote unquote be. As long as it's truthful to the essence, you know, because if if it says, oh, he pauses here, most of the people are going to pause there. If there's an obvious transition point, most of the people are going to transition there. But it's kind of like having more fun with it than mm-hmm. that in a mm-hmm. certain sense. But that was, that was the, what I was getting out, out of it. Because mm-hmm. when, and even when we were doing our self tapes, the, the, like I would do a version of the scene that was faithful and I was hitting all of the moments, but he was like, you know, it's kind of boring. Mm-hmm. And then when I would do a version of the scene where I either slowed it down a lot and kind of really yeah. messed with him or where I kind of really hammered him, even though in the scene, it, it's not really that. It's a, there's, a, there's a kind of a pinch of that in the scene, but it's not really that. Then that kind of got interesting. Or when I was doing it for a reason that wasn't explicit in the scene or wasn't really related to anything that was in the scene, then it kind of got interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, sounds mm-hmm. like a bit uh, taking a risk, but a sort of an informed risk. An informed risk that is, yeah, mm-hmm. that is in, yeah, informed. It's it's coming out of something that is related. Yeah. yeah, that seems to require not just being yourself, but using yourself. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yes. You know, there's a certain fuck it attitude. It does feel like you're taking a risk because you are maybe out on a limb away from where you know the scene should be, but everybody's going to be where the scene should be. You have to be somewhere else, not completely 180 degrees away from it, maybe, but not exactly right in the middle of where the scene should be. Yeah, I'm actually reminded of something uh, along those lines, but a little bit different. Years ago, I, um, I taught with Wendy Davis, who's a wonderful actress in the States, and she had developed a course that was really focused on mastering the close-up. And one of the things that she noticed as sort of a byproduct of encouraging her actors to really master the close-up and then bring it to their auditions was that now, assuming this is sort of before self-tapes took over everything, if you're going into the audition room and you're asking what, what frame you're in, Nine times out of ten, they'll say, "Oh, well, you're sort of a you know a medium or a wide medium." And then if you ask them if they could bring it in close so that you can do the work that you feel is re- really special, you are also doing exactly what your friend described, which is you are giving them something new visually. They're seeing over and over and over again, right? Actors who mm-hmm. could be cast in this role all in the same shot doing it kind of the same way, obviously with some variety, but essentially they're being, as you say, faithful. But now suddenly there's your face, right, in this close-up, and it gets their attention in a new kind of way. And and, um, you just reminded me of that, that that even doing something that's not moving away from the integrity of the piece, but in a way bringing them even closer into it can be very, very Mm -hmm. powerful. And it's risky because you don't want to antagonize them. You know, you don't want them to be like, oh, that's too close. No, you want to excite them. Right. But you don't, because you don't know, because you don't know what's really going to, what's going to excite them and what's going to antagonize them. And it's almost like you have to play this game of like, how much can I, how far can I go and still be truthful to whatever my interpretation of this scene is? Mm. 
Gary, what have you been doing this last week? So, yeah, this week I've just, I've been continuing. uh, I say just, it's not just. uh, I have been continuing with my teaching and coaching. And today in scene study online, as you probably all know by now, it's, uh, I'm still continuing online. I'm running a scene study course and we got very deeply involved in just finishing off breaking down a scene, but then really embodying this sense of an objective and and getting to grips with what that actually is, which we have spoken about in a previous podcast um, on objectives. But it was interesting where we ended our focus and, and what I got the actors to focus on in relation to their objective, which is, you know, really, yes, you understand what you want and why and what's getting in the way, but then it's about really giving yourself over to getting them to do something, the other person to do something because mm-hmm. something's getting in the way. And it was interesting, the other actors' feedback who hadn't done this process before, the fact that just this one element brought it alive to the extent that, in their words, to quote their words or their feedback, was it made the interaction and the the words and these guys were just reading off the script. They hadn't learned anything. They were still early stages. Mm. And their feedback was, it's amazing how it makes it um, the words familiar to these actors who don't even, haven't learned them yet, how they have made it meaningful uh, to them, uh, as well as, you know, the usual that you'd expect from this kind of tool, which is it makes it active and brings them alive. But, uh, you know, other actors were saying that, I, I could actually see the relationship developing between these people when they were getting, trying to get them to do something as opposed to just wanting something. Mm-hmm. We read it in both ways. We read it from the perspective of, I want this. And then we read it from the perspective of, I'm getting you to do this. Mm-hmm. And the difference was, was, was huge. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's like, it's almost like a lot of dominoes when they really commit to that. A lot of dominoes fell and, and things started to happen organically. So it was a really good session on reminding ourselves that you don't have to do a hell of a lot of work, but you do have to work, do the right work. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Great. Lucky student. This episode of the Vagabond Actors Podcast is brought to you by our friends at We Audition. Now look, we all know that auditioning in a pandemic sucks. You can't find the right partner. And if you do find the right partner, how are you going to connect with them in real time and have the read be seamless? Well, We Audition can help with that. They make it easy to find a partner and they take care of all of the technical stuff so that you can focus on what really matters, your audition and being awesome. Not only does We Audition allow you to find partners that can help you really kick ass, you can be a partner that helps other people really kick ass and get paid for it. There's other really great benefits to being a We Audition member. You can have one-on-ones with top casting directors, you can get career advice from industry professionals, and a lot more. Right now, We Audition is offering a discount on membership to Vagabond Actors listeners when you sign up with the promo code VAGABOND25. So just go to weaudition.com, click on sign up, then click on the link where it says promo code. Put VAGABOND25 in the box and you'll get 25% off your membership. Now, back to the show. So moving on to our main topic of discussion this week, we're going to talk about the issue of research or backstory and 
character biographies or character bios and whether they are useful or not useful, the pros and the cons in using them. And, you know, there's a lot of actors that love doing this when working on a role and preparing their role, creating biogs and backstories and involving themselves in research. And it it is a bone of contention between actors and acting teachers on how useful it is, how much you need to do, and the virtue of getting yourself involved in this. So, Andrea, what's your mm. thoughts on this sort of area of the actor's work, whether it's research, backstory, or character bios? What do you, what do you feel about the, the use of these things? I have a really big grin on my face because as you're talking, I realized very clearly that I do have a strong point of view about this subject. Um, the whole character bio, can I just take it right on? The whole character bio thing rather annoys me because I think it can be a bit of a trap or a crutch, or even a distraction. Sometimes it's needed, and sometimes I just don't think it's needed. I think it can really get in the way of you being fully present in the moment, who you are, listening, working from your humanity, getting what you need, giving your scene partner what they need. And sometimes I think it can become this academic piece for an actor where they're trying to put something in that just doesn't resonate for them. You know, it, it doesn't matter to me. I'm just thinking of a film I did with a director named Joe Hackett. Joe is actually a really talented filmmaker. And we did a film where I played uh, the mother and I'd been, I was struggling with cancer. And one of my favorite scenes is, is with the boy who played my son, you know, just coming into the room, trying to connect with him. It's just a mother-son scene, and either I understand it as a human or I don't. And while I did my research on cancer and life with cancer and the treatments and the side effects, so I know how I feel physically and I, I can create out of my imagination what I've been through, and the risk that I feel that the disease presents to my whole family, and I just know that I'll do anything for my family, I don't have to necessarily go wildly deeper than that, because if that already starts to just play upon me, and I know as I'm standing on the other side of the bedroom door about to walk into the scene that I understand everything I need to understand as a woman and as a mother about this scene, then I feel fully prepared. So I think sometimes this idea of character bios can get an actor a little off track and away from that which is most essential to the work. Yeah, it's a tricky thing. And I think it's like most things, really. It's it's how you go about using it and when and to what degree. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, most, if not all, background can be gleaned from the text. Exhaust that before you rely on making things up. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You know, yeah. Um, I mean, it's kind of obvious because it's there. Why do extra work when you don't need to? Mm -hmm. In fact, you shouldn't make things up unless you just have to fill in some gaps that have been provided in the text. Mm -hmm. There is a difference from filling in gaps and then making things up yeah. willy nilly mm -hmm. from nothing 
to try and create something interesting. Yeah. I think, Andrea, you make a good distinction between research into a life experience that you may not have, a time period that you may not be very familiar with, mm -hmm. a historical event that maybe mm -hmm. the plot is dealing with that you may not know that much about and you or you may not know specifically about what the details of that historic event were and you by doing research on it you might start to feel like oh i have a more personal connection to this event or this um let's if it's cancer or this disease or if it's someone who does sports then reading about other people who have done that sport or played that instrument or whatever and what they go through, you might start to form a personal connection to those details that you find in the research. I think that's a very different ball of wax to looking at kind of doing a character bio in the way that you would sit down and say, I was born on this date and I had this experience at school and uh, my mother treated me this way and and I had this friend who was named this and, and kind of, like you said, Gary, making up details, which may or may not mean something to you. One of the things when we talk to students who are going through the Meisner training about creating their imaginary circumstances when they do the knock at the door or when they mm -hmm. start to create circumstances for their independent activity, one of the things that we talk about is if whatever detail you create in terms of that circumstance doesn't mean anything to you, then mm -hmm. it's just clutter. Then there's no reason for you to have that detail if it's not actually something that you have a a connection to, and that's meaning mm -hmm. something to you. And exactly like you said, Gary, any of those details that the writer feels are relevant for that character to have as part of their circumstance, if they are not mentioned in the text, there's probably not that important. Now, I'm not, that's not in every case. You probably will find examples where, oh, you have to know this, but how would you know that if it's not in the text anywhere? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah. if it's something that no, that it's never alluded to in the text, then how does it manifest? You probably can get 90% of the way there just by doing a detailed analysis of the text, the way that we did in our Digging into the Text series. And then you probably get another 90% of the way there by just paying attention to the other actors. And so you've already got 180%. I don't know why you would need to create... Um, to create extra stuff. But yeah, I mean, if you're doing research to find out more about an era or some kind of experience that the character needs to live through as part of their circumstance that you don't know that much about, then I think that can be helpful if you connect to it and then let it go and let it be a part of your, just the, what's simmering around in the background. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think if there's, you know, if there's a real characterization to be had and there's a type of person that you need to embody and you need to find that in your physical being and you need to understand that in an intimate way, why this person moves the way he moves, why he thinks the way he thinks and, and create some details and relationships and experiences around that. That to me is a more legitimate use of the practice of the character bio. That's really making something very specific for yourself. 
you know, that's a little bit separate from research. That, that to me is building out a persona who is unlike your straight behavior and has a very specific set of circumstances that he or she's lived through that you need to really understand in order to bring it to life. And, you know, we see that in a lot of the film characterizations that have been really huge character transformations like Charlize Theron in in Monster, for example. You know, for her to really understand the state of this woman's mind, she has to do a physical transformation. And there's, there's obviously a series of experiences in the woman's life that's brought her to this point. So, so that, to me, is a very intense and focused kind of work that one needs to do to build it out. But I think for many, many roles, actors can get sidetracked by this idea that they need to invent all of these things that, as you say, Brian, don't really touch them or move them. And they're not, they don't create anything that's actable. And they don't necessarily deepen or specify the work in any way that's of great benefit. And I think that's a bit of the danger. Yeah. I think the problem is, is with these things, particularly character biogs and backstories, research is a a slightly different thing. And I'll talk about that in a sec. Mm -hmm. But okay, well, research, for instance, as you've just mentioned with Charlie Theron, that's kind of necessary if you're playing Mm -hmm. a, a series killer then it might behoove you <laughs> to find out a little bit about it you know natalie portman in black swan she's a, a top ballet dancer she you know trained for up to eight hours a day six days a week for over a year ahead of filming because you've got to look like you are a top ballerina you know mm-hmm. robert de niro in the bronx tale research driving a bus so he looks like he's a bus driver you know mm-hmm. so those things are kind of part of acting and they that that's common sense i would say but the problem is is if you're playing a brain surgeon let's say but the piece is about the disintegration of your marriage and family and we don't actually see you working in a professional capacity then you're better off starting off by concentrating and connecting to the personal truths and the relationships and the emotional demands and making that meaningful and family rather than going to understand how to pick up a scalpel. Mm-hmm. because that's where the focus is. Now, if you, we see you in the workplace and then, you know, then yes, you, have, you better know how to pick up their scalpel. You know, research, there are times when it is absolutely necessary. There's stories of various actors like Jeff Bridges, when he gets his character, he likes to go and hang out in the hometown that these people are from. Mm-hmm. and just see if anything resonates. Mm-hmm. Now, I've done that before too. I love that approach. I've done yeah. this a couple of times. It works It works really nicely on a lot of levels. Right. Maybe something can come from that. You know, and Leonardo DiCaprio, when he worked on What's Eating Gilbert Grape, and he played the character with mental disabilities, he went to a mm-hmm. care home. He hung mm-hmm. out with the kids with these disabilities. He came back to the director with a checklist of attributes and behaviors. He showed the director and the director ticked off a few that he wanted, Lasse Holstrom, and, and said, I want those. And simple mm-hmm. as that. And he incorporated them. So, you know, there's a practical element to all of this. But for me, when you get into character biogs and you get into backstories, it can become academic. Mm-hmm. And it mm-hmm. the, the danger is it makes actors feel like they're doing a lot of useful work. Mm-hmm. When actually, as you've both mentioned quite rightly, and it's a real main focus for me in all of this, is 
if it's not actable and it doesn't bring you alive, it's of mm. no use. Mm-hmm. might be interesting. And it's so time-consuming, all of this. It's like you need to see where you need to put your focus on. For instance, yeah. that example of the brain surgeon is start to really get into the emotional life and the relationships that you're going to lose rather than maybe going to research a brain surgeon, which perhaps is just maybe a label of his profession in this piece and not necessarily we're going to see him in action. So actually it might not be somewhere to put your focus. Yeah. (laughs) If you can replace brain surgeon with any other professional, like white collar professional, like lawyer or whatever it might be, then probably the brain surgeon part probably isn't so important. Maybe you would spend some time thinking about, but not that much time, thinking about, well, what kind of drive does someone need to have to be whatever this profession is? You know, how, how does the pressures of the work affect the family life? But that's that's maybe slightly different than doing a full biog. And something you said, Carrie, just now was something that I was thinking about, which is, I mean, how much time do you have to do all this stuff mm-hmm. and prioritize? Because it if it's for a role and you know you're shooting it in three months and you don't have anything else on your slate and you have the resources, both financially and, and time-wise, to go and live in whatever town your character might have grown up in for a few days, great, go for it, do it. I mean, who's, you know, why not? Just kind of like what Ed said, you know, why not go and have a, have a little vacation that's kind of work-related, you know, and see what happens. But if you're if you have an audition in, in 48 hours that you have to get to, you probably aren't going to spend as much time doing a full character bio. Certainly not. I mean, I think it's more for when we're working on a role and that that would be silly. You're right. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, but some people do it. I mean, some people would start to do their work on a scene that they have to do for a role by trying to figure out what the biography of the character is. Right. And maybe going to towns where your character's from or, or or even, you know, there was an actress once who did a play about a train crash disaster and she was playing one of the survivors and she said that she couldn't quite get hold of the emotional severity of the situation, even if she tried to substitute and all the rest of it. Maybe I don't know if she did actually try to substitute or, or, or personalise the trauma. However... She said that she went to the site of the crash a few times and nothing happened. And then one time she went to the site of the crash, I think a third or fourth time, and 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 just something, maybe her meditating on loss, on a crash, on the mm. losing of her parents, I don't know, kind of it stimulated that. So I don't know, maybe it can G you along or free you up creatively. But the thing to me is, is, is the character's past will only affect the scene if the writer has att- intended it. Mm-hmm. You know, and mm-hmm. if the writer believes it to be essential to the scene, it mm-hmm. will be present in the character's dialogue or actions or both. Yeah, mm-hmm. And you can then, you know, this word extrapolate, which Brian bestowed on us in our, uh, in our trilogy. <laughs> of- you are welcome. Yeah. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> My honor to serve you. I've been using it while I'm eating dinner. I'm going to extrapolate this piece of meat. It's a great word. It's a great, <laughs> great word. But if it's intended to have an effect or be important, there will be a clue there. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe you still do have to do the work to connect with it, make emotionalize it for yourself. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But what you have to make up is the emotional content behind it. 
mm-hmm. personalization or substitution or connection or whatever you do, but you don't have to make it up. Mm-hmm. Because you look at Biff and Happy in Death of a Salesman. Yeah. There's enough information there for you to create a point of view, and then you can meditate creatively on it or substitute directly or whatever it is you do to kind of understand that relationship. But you don't have to make things up. And I think, back to Stanislavski, and I think he didn't mean this, but I think it's been bastardized since. He says, you know, he said that the actor should create not only the fragment of the character's life, as we see on stage, but also the entire past. That's mm-hmm. merely hinted at by the word. Now, mm-hmm. I don't know. I think that's been taken literally and the academics have got hold of it and they've kind of made it something that feels like it's a lot of hard work but doesn't necessarily give you keys into the script. I mean, I just want to bring one thing up, which this is where I feel it, it can be destructive. I found a list. There, there are people out there who love lists, you know, and I discovered... They'll remain nameless, and I uh, can't even remember where what the source is. But they were- I think I know. I know of one list from right. one person that we both don't like. Right. There, I'm sure there's a few, but there's there's a hundred questions. Right. Now it comes with a proviso. You can use all of them or some of them. But let me just read out a couple of them, and you tell me how useful they are. In school, who was your favorite teacher and why? Right. <laughs> As a child, were you praised or rewarded with money, food, gifts? You know, maybe that's relevant depending on the situation. But, you know, in school, who was your favorite teacher and why? You know, uh, I just think what, you know, if you celebrate your birthday with others, who would be in attendance? This is a question on a list of role preparation. And but then check this out, right? If you've completed some, all of these questions, you should now trust that this knowledge, keyword, is in your mm-hmm. subconscious and forget about it. Mm-hmm. Now you have filled your character with inner life. I don't think so. No. And you should now not be focusing on these things in your performance. Now, <laughs> how is that going to address the scene? Only unless it's like if a certain ailment is a problem, right? a certain ailment, let's say you have diabetes and you've had a history of it, it's only really important if it features in the scene or in the Mm -hmm. piece. Mm -hmm. It's the difference between head work and heart work. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's the danger. I'm not saying all of it is bad. I'm just saying if you rely on it and it's the only work you do and it makes you feel like you're doing a lot, it stays academic, which stays in your head. It's just knowledge. Um, yeah. you know, but then there are directors like Katie Mitchell, who's a fantastic British theatre director, who sends off a 50-page question and answer for people to fill out before their first rehearsal. So I don't know. If it's not in the script and doesn't resonate, I just think I'd rather deal with more heart and gut work. Anyway, that's my rant. You know, there's there. Okay, so I'm gonna play. A <laughs> I little love bit that of you're devils. ranting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna play a little bit of devil's advocate here. Okay, what having a list of thirty or a hundred questions does, as unhelpful as as we think some of those questions might be, if you sit down 
and answer those questions. Like you, kind of like you said, Gary, you, you will have sat down and be thinking about the script and thinking about how maybe it connects to you or thinking about, you know, it's a way, it's a framework that is graspable that you can hand out in a PDF to a whole class of students and say, here's work that you can do on the script. And if you sit down and do that work, maybe what happens is, yes, there's a lot of clutter, but for people who aren't capable or aren't willing of of walking through the actor of like, okay, how do you get to the the heart work of it? If you If you're not capable of that or you're not interested in that, then this is a way of having people really sit down and sit with the scene. I don't, I don't agree, Brian. I, I have to say, I, I'm, I saying I'm playing devil's advocate I, okay. as a reason why someone might do this. Okay. Here's my response to that. This is a one size fits all approach with things that may or may not trigger a creative fantasy that could serve somebody in a scene, but that's a really wide net to cast. Yes. Um, I would much rather give students or actors whom I'm directing really specific instruction that is born out of the script and the story and the time period and the history of these characters together, and then guide them to coming up with their own key questions that are directly related to the scene that they're engaged in. You know, my favorite teacher, I mean, unless we're we're playing kindergarten cop, you know, and it's important for Schwarzenegger to have a moment of reflecting on his own life as a child. I don't know. I don't know how that really serves anybody. You know, I played Gertrude in, in Hamlet with Mark Pellegrino, who many of our listeners know. And who, who was Gertrude's favorite teacher? So I you don't didn't do know. It, right? and I, and don't why, I don't know. No, I don't care. Because um, Gertrude was probably taught privately. But Mm -hmm. I spent my rehearsal time, you know, with Mark working on the scenes, the doings in the scenes, which in Shakespeare can change from almost line to line what you're doing. And then in terms of understanding my relationship to him and to Claudius and to the king, there was fantasy work there, but it, it was very specific fantasy work about that life. And it was either reflected in something that was present in the story that we were telling, or it was something that I felt I needed to engage for my emotional preparation. So I maybe had a couple of fantasies about, you know, when Hamlet was a young boy that I created for myself, just some daydreams that I had. And that moved me very much to see him still as this young, precious, innocent child. And so Mm -hmm. if I used that in some of my emotional preparation, it just contributed to my sense of heartbreak over the fact that my son may be going mad. But that was something that directly deepened my work and made it more specific and tied me even tighter to my acting partner. And that has mm-hmm. nothing to do with my favorite teacher in my childhood. It's about the people I'm engaged with in this story. You know, this is life and death, and I'm fighting for them. And I have to know how I feel about them now. So I just think taking this broad stroke is not particularly helpful to student actors. 
if we're talking about stimulus, maybe if you're struggling or there's times where maybe you're not getting it or you want a bit of extra help and there's some kind of stimulus, but stimulus that you've got to stimulate your point of view or it's got to stimulate yes. your feelings or it's got to yes. stimulate something about you. I mean, you know, Matthew McConaughey, he talks about when he was in Magic Mike, he wrote nine pages to riff off his character. He just wrote it just to get it off his chest. And I don't know whether that counts as research, background, bug or whatever, but he just, it's not, that's a creative act. He, he kind of, mm-hmm. that's establishing from that. He maybe lifted out his point of view or lifted out his worldview or, or whatever, but he, he basically just stream of consciousness wrote nine pages when he did Magic Mike. And things like that we're talking about might trigger something or, yeah. or help you along the way. We're not talking about re- research, even going to, you know, the the Met in New York or the, the National Gallery in London and, and looking at some Edvard Monk pictures when you are doing a Stringberg. Might, it might do something to you if mm-hmm. you have the time, first of all, and you'll find your way on what works for you. But I think your first port of call has to be, as we've all said, and we've said in other podcasts, it's the text. Gather all the information you need there. And in some instances, you won't need to do much else. And in other instances, you might need to fill in quite a few gaps. It all depends on the style of the writing. And, and then you'll know how much work you've left, you've got left to do and how much time you've got to do it in. Mm. Actors aren't academic. They are performers. Yes. They work from the heart and the guts. Yes. And the brain is there useful in a certain way to break down a scene and maybe to count the money if it's a good job at the end of it. <laughs> right? As Stella so Adler it. said, it is not about the words. It is about the soul. So let mm-hmm. it be about the soul. And the thing is, right, if you're playing, let's say, I don't know, let's say you're playing a policeman who's interrogating somebody and this this person has, has stolen something or done something. And let's say the policeman has done that in the past, but nobody knows about it. It's his secret. And he still managed to become a policeman, but maybe he's he's stolen money or he's defrauded or something like that. That is only relevant if the writer intends it to be relevant in the scene. You don't need to bring it in unless it has some effect on the playing of the scene. Otherwise, it's like it's irrelevant. And you'll know whether it's relevant or not, because the writer will give tip you a wink. So just because you may have some kind of history that is similar to this person, and that when you're talking to them, you should have a certain reaction. Well, maybe that's a choice. But I think you'll have a clue at in the writing, if the writer intends the policeman to have a reaction to this criminal because he's done the same thing. If you really listen, there's a lot there. But then again, research is necessary when it's called in in terms of professions or accents or periods. But then, you know, you hear of people like Gary Oldman, who, when doing Dracula, would sit on his San Francisco hilltop veranda and his condo, play wolves howling and howl along with them <laughs> and you just, i'm just like okay well you're a bit mental anyway gary oldman <laughs> but i'm sure he could justify why it helped him but i'm like okay hmm. i mean what i would do and maybe that has a visceral effect on him it probably does and you know, probably does yeah it probably does so i okay maybe it does but uh, perhaps I would go about it in the sense of whatever he was looking the effect to be is what makes that happen to me? Is it Howling Wolves? Is it the ecstasy of reaching the top of a mountain? 
I don't want to say horses for courses because that means it's like an open thing, and I'm and I'm 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 careful about biogs. But I think it's where you put your attention, and your attention first of all is to serving the writer. After that, if there's room, you can invent. I think we could all agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if it's serve the writer. Try to come up with stuff that you have a connection to or be looking for a connection to it. If it's just something that is intellectual, then it's clutter and you don't need it. If you're just coming up with, this is who my teacher was, and that's just information, it's worthless. But if you say, this is who my teacher was, and this is why this is relevant, and this is what it means to me, and I really feel something about that, then maybe it would work for you and maybe it, maybe it's just clutter still. I, I would also just say, in closing... Um, like it's okay to try a whole bunch of different stuff and it's okay to do crazy things that, you know, we might be saying, well, we don't think this works. And if you try it and it really works for you, then go for it, you know, go for it with, with write to us and say, Hey, you know, you said that we shouldn't come up with this biog, but in this case, it really worked for me and it really got a lot out of it. That's great. And just kind of be aware as you go through it, of what is your process? What does work for you? If making animal noises and and kind of being feral uh, really brings out something in you that really is useful, who who are we to say that that, that you right. shouldn't do that? You should do what works for you. Right. But there is a difference. There is a difference. I have to say, there is a difference between you having an experience and then having something that serves the life of the character or the scene. You know, which can often happen in acting classes is. You get an experience, but you don't know how you can how that will actually be useful to bringing a character to life truthfully. That's what you find out, right? Whether it's just you having an isolated experience which feels right, or and whether it actually is a creative choice that can help to illuminate the character. Right, which is why I think all three of us are are talking about and that whole series that we did about digging into text. I mean, why that is so important is because if you have a good understanding of what the text actually is, what the writing actually is, it'll be much harder for you to go off and have an experience that has no connection to the text because you'll be looking at it within that frame of mind. But I wouldn't want to say, hey, you know, whatever approach is working for you, if you're getting the result that you need and that the director needs and you're getting roles doing that, then keep doing it. You know, like I am very much one to be anti-dogmatic when it comes to that. And there is no one approach that should be venerated above all others. Yeah. For sure. If you're yeah. getting roles, it's working, then there's the justification and there's, right. there's the testament. I mean, right. I love nothing more on than on a Friday night going to the top of a hill and howling at the top of my, <laughs> my lungs. But I don't necessarily put that into my acting, but hey. Okay. <laughs> well, okay, cool. I mean, we would love to hear from you guys as listeners, what is your approach to doing research or what have you done? Not in not so much in terms of emotional preparation, but in terms of how do you find your connection to what the author has written, I think is kind of what we're talking about here, is making the connection to what the, the author wrote more personal to you. And how do you go about that? We'd love to hear about that. So just let us know uh, what your process is. We'd love to hear about it. And I think it's it's worth sharing it on, on our Facebook page, or if you uh, follow us on Instagram at Vagabond Actors, or, or we're on Twitter as well. And if you reply 
apply, then other people who follow us can also see that. And we can start a discussion there about what practices work practically for you guys. Um, but what have you guys seen this week that's moved you? We like to talk about that as well. Hmm. I have not seen anything this week. I have just been reading. I do recommend a book called Everything is Figure Outable by Marie Forleo. She's a bit of a thought leader, a business leader, um, entrepreneur. She's very engaging and um, she's written this book and I'm listening to it on Audible and it's it's lovely. It's got some great insight to offer and it's, I think, a bit uh, in workbook fashion. So I look forward to completing that and doing a little bit of internal assessment. So everything is figure outable by Marie Forleo. Cool. Yeah. Um, let's see. What have I watched? I... I'm watching crap these days. Um, I get into these slumps where I'm watching uh, cooking shows. Actually, um, I've been watching The Chef Show, which is uh, John Favreau, the the famous actor and director, and Roy Choi, who was John Favreau's chef coach when he was playing in the movie Chef. Um, and and they go around and and have a really great rapport and and talking to chefs about their process, what they do. And then, and then, uh, John and Roy actually make the things that the chef's signature ditches. That sounds really really fun. It's really fun. And it's, and it looks fantastic. If you have a food kind of, Mm -hmm. mm, you know, these cooking show kind of almost fetishes, the the food looks great. And it, you know, they talk about acting and directing some sometimes. And, uh, so I've been watching that and it's, it's a really great kind of palate cleanser with all this, the chaos that's going on in the world. So the name again and where we can find it. It's called, okay. So it's on Netflix and it's called the chef show. Okay. The Chef Show on great. Netflix, and and it's really great. And they've have a few seasons, and um, and it's uh, it's really nice. It's really nice. Great. There's another one on Netflix called Chef's Table. I don't know. If that's you- a great one too. Yeah. yeah, that's fantastic. And that's people who have gone from different walks of life into being chefs, haven't they? And they they're really and really unique. Yeah, the chefs the chefs table is much more. The cinematography is. Yeah. is really beautiful in the sh- in chef's table yeah. and it's much more of a of a short like an hour long documentary about that chef's journey and that chef's food yeah and the chef's show is much more of a kind of interview discussion while we're making your dishes and talk about your life but also talk about the food and what your inspiration was but it's much more cash yeah sounds good i think well, yeah it's great mm. fantastic they're both great they're both great shows well, this week I've been working with a, a, a client on uh, one-to-one work on, on August Osage County by Tracy Letts. Oh, yes. Uh, I know of it, and I hadn't really gone into it before, and mm-hmm. I've always wanted to. Great opportunity. So, and on the, off the back of that, I watched the movie, um, mm-hmm. Julie Roberts and Meryl Streep and all the others. And uh, so it's just a really, really, really good relationship-based Peace. I mean, it's all about relationships. And if you mm. take on board what we've been talking about in terms of biogs or backstory, yeah. I mean, a whole collection of vivid characters whose life has, has you know, have had huge life journeys. Well, there's there's a great script there to be able to mm. look at what you do have to create um, uh, if you do. Um, mm. 
when working on that. But I would just, I'd recommend reading a play and that play this week would be August Osage County by Tracy Letts and really get into a a dysfunctional, damaged family and the motivations when they all come together after the disappearance and death of the the patriarch of the family. Excellent. That sounds great. And so... Let's see. I've already talked about how you guys as listeners can get in touch with us at Vagabond Actors almost everywhere on Instagram and Twitter and on our Facebook page. What about getting in touch with us personally? So Gary, where can people get in touch with you? Yeah, they can get in touch with me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at Gary Condes. Um, But, you know, why not get in touch with me via my contact page on my website and have a look at my website while you're there. It is GaryCondes.com. Awesome. And you are available for one-to-one coaching and uh, you have some video classes coming up. Absolutely. Weddings, bar mitzvahs and, uh, and, and coaching and teaching. Uh, <laughs> right. I am available for all of those things. Um, in coaching capacity. Yeah, I've got courses coming up. Scene study, casting technique, um, script analysis. Great. And it's all on your website, GaryCondes.com. Thank you very much, Brian. <laughs> and Andrea, what about you? Where can people get in touch with you? I am on an Instagram at Andrea Helene three and on Twitter at Andrea underscore Helene. And I also do weddings and bar mitzvahs. <laughs> and, but no acting coaching. <laughs> well, you draw the line at acting. I do coaching. draw the line there. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Awesome. And, um, and I, as always, am at Brian Casp on Twitter and Instagram And I have a Facebook page that you can look at, but I don't really post much there. So, um, and you do weddings. I actually do do weddings. My wife and I do do weddings for real, actually. And if you want to, if you want to have a destination wedding in Prague, uh, you can go to (laughs) PrageWeddingOfficiants.com and, uh, and look at what we have. It's actually there. Um, but that's, you know, probably after all of the travel restrictions ease up, that's probably a better call. Um, but until next time, uh, we hope you stay safe and we look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks folks. Take care of yourselves. Thanks everybody. Stay safe.